Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Imagine hearing Mozart's 40th Symphony, second movement right now. So I don't have the music where I can play it in and out like all those other podcasts do, but believe me, music like that is always playing in your professor's head. So this, I think, is lecture number 54 in immunoepigenetics, and I apologize for not doing more lectures, but your professor is in the process of moving um, the Authentic Biochemistry podcast and indeed himself and his dog, Rocky, to another undisclosed as yet location. And when I finally move, going from the third person to the first person now, I'll let you know where I'm living and we'll take pictures and you'll get all that ambiance. I'm also going to come back with video lectures as I promised, but I don't think I'm going to do that until after I move. And that's going to be still a bit of a while, uh, probably a month. Um, so let's just get started with this lecture. I thought I would bring that all up to you so that you know why I've been um, delayed. I've been doing a lot of things in preparation of moving, into, including finding a place to live. Um, all right. I would just say that after all of that time, I want to focus on a general um, examination of our topic, going all the way back to the most important science, biochemistry, and explaining to you what biochemistry has taught me that far from a materialistic paradox, which is often, uh, I would say, ascribed to scientific dogma, the truth is that life, biochemistry is about living systems, is just very simply <laughs> complex. Now, it's complex to the extent that it is only that which comprises a phenomenological event. So you know that everything we talk about in biochemistry and in science in general is all about phenomena. So even these events in the phenomenological realm are hardly described in detail. That even one living cell apparently calmly executes a complexity that we have not even come close to describing, let alone understanding. And all of that can happen, all that execution of activity in any given, let's say, mammalian cell, let's say a patocyte. All of that going down even in less than a minute. So you know that my interpretation of living systems, and in fact, everything that exists, is not a substance ontology, but an event ontology, uh, a la Whitehead. Now, Whitehead didn't really invent that. That really comes from pre-Socratic philosophers. I could go all the way back to Anaximander, I think, with the Aperon. Okay, but <clears throat> let me say this. Living systems are more than all the biochemistry 
I know that's hard to say, but also the lesser sciences like genetics, the elegant science of epigenetics, and the very, very close to the best, which is biochemistry, physiology. Well, they could be described most succinctly as penta ray. That's Greek, and it means, it's from Heraclitus now, all things are in flux. Hence, the event ontology. Now, if you think about all the detail we went through just on explaining transcription factor complexes, <clears throat> controlling, say, the transcription, translation, glycosylation, mobilization within the cell, and then secretion of cytokines to generate an inflammatory response. Think about like interleukin 1 beta, for example, uh, interleukin 17, cytokines like that. That entire event, okay, is occurring over time, but the transcription factor complex that we generated, the control over that TF as a polypeptide in the cytoplasm, as to whether or not its fate would end up being proteolytically degraded or mobilized and then modified covalently and non-covalently, covalently via the addition of carboxylic acid residues and also remember hydroxy fatty acids. And then not talking about covalent but hydrophobic interactions, Remember all the lipid species that are associated with transporting cargo transcription factor into the nucleus. And then the assembly of all those polypeptides to make the complex, some maybe as many as 10 to 20 to 30 other proteins, which have to form that complex where the transcription factor can actually act in trans to the DNA element to start opening up specifically at the promoter region and at unique and discrete enhancer regions to start running RNA polymerase 2 and generating transcript. That entire event ontology is more complex because the entire cell is functioning with the complete communication network, or that is awareness at the biochemical level. By this, I'm not being panpsychic here. I'm not saying that biochemical processes have any kind of understanding because they're not sentient systems, right? But what I'm saying is the communication network has to be absolutely in tune, like the 40th Symphony, second movement of Mozart. And that has to, that means the orchestra has to be in tune. Every note has to be absolutely measured and arranged in such a way that you faithfully can play that second movement of that symphony. It's the same thing that's happening in the cell, only rather than just being a, a sequence of notes, not a collection, not, not a collection, but a sequence, because that's what a symphony is too, right? That there's a sequence of events in the cell that are all working interactively, that even that just 
one movement of the transcription factor in the nucleus to generate cytokines, IL-1 beta IL-17 in a TH17 cell, for example, has to be in communication at the biochemical level with all the other systems functioning in that cell. Yes, every single one. There isn't one component of all the biochemistry in that single cell, that single T lymphocyte, that is not communicating at that biochemical level with all the other systems. That's what I'm trying to explain. So those are going to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of events happening essentially simultaneously so that that one function that we just isolated in the one lecture, actually probably the 10 lectures I gave you on that description of the transcription factor complex to run the cytokine production, Remember the keep holding it in and all of that, and the Michael addition reactions, remember, of the uh, fatty acids, of the hydroxy and epoxy fatty acids coming from arachidonic acid, the release from preformed glycerol lipids in the membrane via phospholipase A2, and then the cyclooxygenase enzymes, or sometimes lipoxygenase or P450 monooxygenases. All of that's functioning just so you make those transcripts, right? But all the other things have to function. All of the uh, control over bioenergetics, for example. Everything is going on in the mitochondria, you know, the five complexes of the electron transport chain, but also what's going on in the nucleus to generate any other transcript or what's going on in the cytoplasm or the ER to translate those transcripts and all the transfer RNA in the mitochondria and all the gene expression in the mitochondria. Likewise, very sequentially, specifically composed. So the mitochondria is interacting all the time with the nucleus, not just at the level of what proteins have to ultimately be synthesized to generate the electron transport chain. Remember that that requires genes that are um, composed, that is, they're found in the nuclear genome, and genes that are composed are found in the mitochondrial genome. Not just that absolute stoichiometric ratios to be able to generate that electron transport chain. Only looking at that one little event of the mitochondria, but also all the epigenetic control that we got into. The microRNAs that are sending a microRNA synthesized in the mitochondria to go into the nucleus and start what? <laughs> Titrating message being generated by the nucleus. So just the appropriate amount of that messenger RNA that's been capped and has this uh, three prime and polyadenylated to make it to the cytoplasm or indeed make it into the endoplasmic reticulum requires that kind of translation, which would of course involve a whole host of what? Co and post-translational modification of the peptide, such as glycosylation, prenylation, acylation. And at least that glycosylation then has to be controlled, limit by intermediates during the pathway that ultimately can lead to cholesterol biosynthesis, but also to the dolichol pathway and the ubiquinone pathway. All of that has to be working in perfect synchrony. It's not just random. We're making, you know, the cell is making all of these transcripts for all these enzymes to make all those lipids. All those enzymes have to be there in the correct amount to be able to run the Vmax and the substrates have to be there in the correct amount to prepare for the KM 
These are kinetic constants. Those are the simplest ones. Michaelis mentioned kinetic constants. Just to be able to make the whole system put, come together, let alone to function. Now, all that time I spent, I don't know how many minutes, five minutes, six, seven minutes, that's just one very, very small orchestration of a series of events which must occur just to make something like those cytokines, those two cytokines I mentioned. Imagine all the other things that are going on in the cell. And I'm going to stop there because I could imagine it. And it would just be me going on and on and on with, you know, examples. So I'm done with that. What I'm trying to say is there is not enough that we could ever get. This is my dialectical consideration at the synthetic level, by the way. Finding physical chemical laws that explain precisely what must occur. Now, all we're able to do is say what does occur, right? Remember the modality of the system. What must occur, what is occurring, and what cannot occur, right? Those are mod modality signatures, right? Uh, and the way we think. And this is all just about the way we think because we know all these things we're describing are our interpretation of the events by using symbols such as chemistry, biology, and of course, yes, physics, and then down below that, mathematics and logic. But we're putting all that into the system to explain it. And we're very good at that. Okay. So you cannot find cosmological or strictly dialectical or logical grounds for life, okay, life. So you end up with paralogisms suggesting a conclusion, and what a paralogism is, by the way, is suggesting a conclusion that goes beyond what is required by the premises. Okay, you can't find that. You can't end up with that. Or antinomies. Now, what those are, that means against the law, nomus. And that means you go against the law of the excluded middle. Antinomy is like that. And so what does that mean? The event, and I'm going to give you the example I'm describing here. The event life cannot be and not be at the same time and at the same place, or if you like, in symbolic logic, you could do that too. L, <laughs> that's life, cannot be A, A is alive, and not A at the same event sequence. I'll repeat that. L cannot be A and not A at the same event sequence. Okay. So we have antinomies and your paralogisms. So beyond all that phenomena, that's all phenomena we're describing there. Well, it's noumena. What do I say about noumena? I cannot say. <laughs> okay. Big introduction, but I figure it's been a long time since I've given a lecture. Gosh, I think it might have been seven days. So I feel really guilty. So I wanted to give you a little bit of, uh, you know, epistemology and metaphysics. Now, let's do a dialectic. Back to our topic. Now, T lymphocytes react in the intact human dynamic event ontology to respond to the environment. 
Now, the function is to maintain cellular and physiological, we talk about multicellular organism, health, plus preparation for future change that includes, this is all what chain lymphocytes job is, okay? That includes nutritional alterations, neurological and neurohormonal imprinting, the possibility and consequence of disease, because this is event ontology over time, right? And what else is happening over time? Aging itself, because aging is the factor in all living systems, leading to senescence, and then, depending on the complexity of disease, and aging ultimately also leading to death. So T lymphocyte lineages and associated biochemical communication will be modified via changes in the epigenome, as well as all those canonical, inducible, and repressible gene expression and membrane recombinatorial events. When I talk about a membrane recombinatorial event, it's not a word salad. That, uh, that describes in a generic way, membrane, lipid, raft, mobility, and movement of polypeptides to different endomembranous demands. Okay? So key epigenetic molecular events in that dynamic process include, of course, the chromatin retailering and CPG methylation, histone acetylation, and then microRNA interference, usually of translation all of which require the establishment of a dialectical event, ontological phenomena. Dialectical because there has to be an interplay between two systems always going yes or no, right? And then so that's just the dialectic itself. And then it's an event I think I've explained why that is, because it's also temporal. And that then describes the ontology. What is there, right? All of that kind of phenomena is, that's the general synthesis of this story. Now, so I got a paper published in JBC 2018. Now, since methylation can be off and on, and basically you can see it as a switch, for what? For chromatin retailering mediated nation transcription. So both the combined accumulation of covalent histone methylation and acetylation and the sequence specificity at the DNA level has to be read out according to transcript level event. So in particular, the methylation of histone H3 at lysines 4, 36, and 79, so that would be called H3K4, H3K36, H3K79 in the literature. That has to be associated with transcriptional activation, whereas methylation of histone H3 at lysines 9 and 27 will be correlated to a transcriptional silencing. So histone methylation and demethylation are what I'm going to call 
complex elastic phenomena. Now remember the difference between plastic and elastic. By elastic, I mean you can turn it on and off. It's like you stretch a rubber band and then you bring the rubber band back to its uh, contracted uh, initial state, right? So I call that elastic rather than plastic where you get a methylation and it stays through the life of the cell and even through what? Mitosis, right? That happens as well. So that means you have a plastic phenomena and you all, more importantly have an elastic one, which is very, very difficult to observe because it can happen very rapidly. That's why it went undetected for many years of biochemical research. Now, there's a methyltransferase called <laughs> EZH2. Now, I know you're going to like that better than what that means. Enhancer of zesty homolog 2. Now, that methyltransferase catalyzes the S-adenosylmethionine-dependent trimethylation that we've talked a lot about uh, of H3. So that's that enzyme's involved in making H3K27. Okay, K27-trimethylated. Now, members of another uh, enzyme called the Jumanji domain-containing, that's JMJ, ferrous and 2-oxoglutarate-dependent oxygenases, they catalyze, it's all what that is, that I just gave you the long name of that, the JMJs. Those Ferrous 2-oxoglutarate-dependent oxygenases catalyze, actually, the demethylation of the methylated histone lysines I just generated. So the JMJD3 and the KDM6B and the ubiquitously transcribed tetratrichopeptide repeat gene X chromosome, that's UTX and the KDM6A, those are demethylases of the H3K27ME2-3. And that UTX, ubiquitously transcribed tetratrichopeptide repeat gene X chromosome, that's what the UTX stands for, that actually appears to be constitutively expressed in many cells. Not all, but many cells. That doesn't mean it's always in the nucleus. Though. Now, the JMJD3 is inducible by a toll-like receptor for mediated lipopolysaccharide induction. And of course, what else besides LPS, which would be an exogenous cell wall component of bacteria, right? So that would be, what would that be called again? That would be a pathogen-associated molecular pattern, LPS. But now you have danger-associated molecular patterns, and what can those be? Many different cytokines generated, of course, by those cells, and in fact, growth factors. Remember there, we could even talk about interleukin-2. Interleukin-2, which is a professional cytokine, is often a growth factor. Growth factor for what? For cell division of all the T lymphocytes. And even um, 
even associated with B lymphocytic um, replication. Okay. Now, both those enzymes, the JMJD3 and the KDM6B, play important roles in macrophage activity. So that's the, again, the innate immune um, system interacting with the acquired immune system. But very importantly, in the macrophage, those two enzymes play a significant role, in fact, a canonical role in macrophage activity, development, and even in stem cell function leading to those cell lineages, those myeloid cell lineages. Yes, indeed. So UTX is a component of transcriptional complexes, such as the trithorax and the MLL. Now, we talked about this in the past, not that far distant. Remember, the MLL is called the mixed lineage leukemia. That's a protein, okay? Now, those two, trithorax and MLL, regulate gene activation through, directly, histone 3 lysine 4 methyltransferase and histone 3 lysine 27 demethylase activities. Let me check my time. Okay, we've got four minutes left. We're doing good. All right. Let's move on. Now, the control of innate immunity through all that, through the epigenetic remodeling, some of which I just gave you some reminders of specificity, through epigenetic remodeling itself, of course, it's not limited to immune cells. It's particularly immune cells with a long lifetime, like macrophages. So what other innate immune cells might we be talking about? Well, neutrophils. Neutrophils, of course, are highly abundant in the serum, and we know them to be short-lived leukocytes that function as a front-line defense in the immune system. Now, while the epigenetic remodeling in those neutrophils is not as well described as macrophage, because macrophages, they sustain longer, so they're easier to study, you understand, because neutrophils go through apoptosis, right? Anyways, neutrophils less studied because and therefore less understood. There are many recent papers which have which have now described neutrophils through their entire recombinatorial pathways, meaning activation, recruitment, and all their functions. Now, let me give you a, a detail here. An increase in histone three lysine four trimethylation and histone three lysine twenty seven as well as histone 4 acetylation upon stimulation will promote the binding of transcriptional machinery within those neutrophils, generating interleukin-6. So histone acetylation promotes the migration, the phagocytosis, and ultimately neutrophil extracellular trap formation. I was talking about that two years ago plus when we were talking about COVID, but also the loss of the deacetylase, the HDAC11, okay? That will lead to a hyperacetylation modality and an increased, and also it's a quantification, a quantitation effect, but also an increase overall neutrophil activation. 
phenotypic alteration there, making animals more susceptible to LPS-induced sepsis. That is some of the biochemistry of sepsis. Okay, that's only a small portion of it. But now you know epigenetic control. So precise control of piston acetylation is, of course, a mechanism for controlling what I, what I just said, neutrophil activation. In fact, the transcription factor PU1 prevents neutrophil overactivation by recruiting a histone deacetylase, therefore inhibiting the accessibility of the enhancer elements for that gene. Okay, so you know, the gene for uh, interleukin 6. So dynamic chromatin retailering has been demonstrated also in natural killer cells. We talked about that about eight lectures ago. and you can use ATAC sequencing and RNA sequencing. And when you do that, you can also find that early viral infection, when that's occurring, natural killer cells will change chromatin accessibility epigenetically to coordinate directly with transcriptional alterations such that memory natural killer cells have a distinct now, finally, epigenetic landscape that's unique to natural killer cells that are naive. Okay. So I'm going to leave you with that. I know I gave you a long, yes, I'm going to use the word, I'm sorry, prolegomena, <laughs> uh, describing why I've been away from uh, the lecture um, electronic hall so long. But um, I wanted to give that to you, but I also wanted to give you some discrete information into immunogenetics, which we are now fully founded into. I'm going to give you a lecture real soon to finish up, well, to, to proceed. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, still in the Inland Pacific Northwest, saying bye for now.